Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The restaurant that inspired Taco Bell, its larger legacy, and the question of authenticity. Plus, the new species of beetle that was discovered in some fossilized dino dung, and the communities of people who devote their time to uncovering the mystery of Dogman. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So on Tuesday, I talked about McDonald's french fries, how they've changed over the years, and what made them so great in the beginning. The original fry recipe and method started at the very first McDonald's in San Bernardino, California in the 1940s. There, the McDonald brothers perfected their hamburger, french fry, and milkshake recipes to great success. Lines regularly went down the block as people flocked to get their fix. But San Bernardino is not notable in the history of fast food just because of the McDonald brothers. Two miles away, along Route 66, still in San Bernardino, there was another young man with a hamburger stand trying to make his mark. And in the late 40s, he was realizing he really couldn't compete with McDonald's hamburgers. They weren't his only competition, though. Across the street from where he hocked his burgers and hot dogs was a neighborhood staple, a family-run restaurant with a revolving door of regulars. That place was Meat La Cafe, started in 1937 by Mexican immigrants Salvador and Lucia Rodriguez. Lucia was in charge of the kitchen, and early on, she decided to incorporate one of her family's dishes from back in Mexico, one they primarily ate around Lent. It was a hard-shelled taco stuffed with mashed potatoes. Instead of mashed potatoes for the Meat La Cafe version, however, she just used what they had on hand, which happened to be ground beef, cheddar cheese, tomatoes, and iceberg lettuce. The tacos, reminiscent of Taquitos Dorados, were a hit with the local Mexican-American community. But the young white man with the burger stand across the street saw an opportunity. What if he could do with tacos what the McDonald brothers had done with burgers? So he started hanging out at Meat La Cafe to learn more about how they made the tacos and figure out how he could scale them up to mass-produce them. Or, as Irene Montano, daughter-in-law of Salvador and Lucia, put it to writer Gustavo Ariano, quote, This white guy used to come in late at night, ask a lot of questions about how we made tacos, and then leave, end quote. And within a few years, he had added tacos to his own menu, and they were a hit. Although the BBC notes his mostly white customers pronounced them tacos at first. Eventually, he dropped the burgers and kept expanding the taco stands, running through many names before finally settling on one that played on his own name, Glenn Bell, which became Taco Bell. Mr. Bell never really gave Meat La Cafe credit for the dish that defined his empire. It really only came to light when that writer, Gustavo Ariano, was reading a biography of Bell in which Bell describes the intersection of his first hamburger stand and says there was a popular taco restaurant across the street. Ariano drove out to the intersection not expecting much and was shocked to discover the original Meat La Cafe was still operating more than half a century later. Michael Montano, a grandson of Salvador and Lucia, told the BBC, quote, Before Gustavo came in, we hadn't really made the connection. We hadn't equated Taco Bell with Glen Bell. What makes it feel a lot better is that my grandmother is finally getting some credit for her place in the history of Mexican-American cuisine. She came here with small children and made a small business out of almost nothing, end quote. Stephen Alvarez, a professor at St. John's University in Queens, explained to the BBC, quote, It's important to recognize that Bell was a failed fast food entrepreneur before he had the realization that the restaurant across the street from his flagging business was booming, the Meat La Cafe. 
What happened here is a white guy seeing opportunities to market Mexican food to a mainstream audience for the love of profit and not the love of Mexican people. End quote. Fortunately, Meat La Cafe is still around and thriving, and Ariano says it has a multi-generational appeal because it's, quote, a time capsule of Mexican food from the first half of the 20th century. Patricia Escarcega described Meatless Tacos in the LA Times a few years ago as, quote, a tidy, crisp homage to mid-century America. It probably ought to be displayed at the Smithsonian, end quote. And the BBC notes how, largely because of Taco Bell, a lot of folks put up their noses at hard-shelled tacos and accuse them of not being authentic Mexican food. I mean, I'm not sure what can be more authentic than someone sharing their own family's recipes, but we have a weird relationship to the idea of authenticity. John Paul Brammer of the popular Ola Papi newsletter wrote in a fantastic Washington Post op-ed in 2019, quote, a recent study of Yelp reviews for New York restaurants that serve non-white cuisines illustrates this clearly. Reviewers tend to give Mexican and Chinese restaurants in particular lower ratings if they don't perceive them as authentic. What makes something authentic? As with writing, most of the hallmarks seem to be about pain. Dirty floors, plastic chairs, anything that aesthetically connotes struggle. The cooks and waiters ought to have accents. There should probably be a framed photo of someone's dead grandpa. Paradoxically, many of these traits are also ones that America actively punishes, which is why immigrants are often desperate to sieve them out of their families, end quote. And Brammer went on to bring up another restaurant similar to Meat La Cafe, quoting again, Authenticity is restrictive. It limits the imaginations of non-white people. According to a beautiful, sad story in Eater, the demand for authentic Mexican food is threatening to wipe out a unique kind of taco in Kansas City. The taco, found at restaurants throughout the area, is fried and then blanketed in Parmesan cheese. David Lopez, who runs one of the establishments that features it, said his grandmother had embraced Parmesan because it was cheap and around, thanks in part to the proximity of Italian communities. My grandmother made tacos with peas and with potatoes, Lopez said, because she couldn't always afford ground beef. For some Mexican-Americans, this gets at the essence of the way we eat. I can't think of a better example of the fraud of authenticity than this story, which shows that too many people are more interested in the aesthetics of poverty than in poverty itself, more invested in the feeling of realness than in any kind of truth, end quote. And in that vein, I think it's crucial to note that Mila Cafe has kept going since 1937, not because it's known as the inspiration for Taco Bell, or they didn't even really know or care about that until about a decade ago, but rather because it's good and has its own history as an important community hub. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Mila Cafe quickly blossomed into an important meeting point for Mexican families of the day. Cesar Chavez was a regular when in town, and Lucia's husband made patrons out of a powerful group of local businessmen who would go on to form the Mexican Chamber of Commerce. Church and civic leaders met here in the 1940s to sue the city in gaining access to a public pool. The ruling in favor of the Mexican-Americans' plea served as the precedent for the case that desegregated California public schools in 1946. End quote. And as Eater describes Mitla Cafe's legacy, quote, The story that Mitla deserves is one of vitality and enduring success. The original cafe still stands, in the same location, with a historic designation sign outside, and framed photographs on the walls inside, showing generations of important Mexican-American history, some lost to time and others well-known. 
More than a simple all-day eatery, Mila still stands as the voice of a quiet revolution that helped expand Mexican food throughout the world that brought relative peace to a neighborhood and a city that was desperate for it. End quote. You're a beetle. You're hanging out in the late Triassic period, hoping to make a name for yourself, when all of a sudden, you get eaten by a dinosaur. And if that's not bad enough, 230 million years later, your legacy is not all the great achievements of your short life, but rather that you're the first insect found preserved in fossilized feces. Great. Disappointing while it may be to the beetles and their reputations, or even the dinosaur whose bowel movements are now being discussed by news outlets around the world, this discovery is a major one. Not only are these beetles the first insect species described in the fossilized feces of a vertebrate animal, but they're also an entirely new, previously unknown extinct species, and much, much older than any insect specimens that have been found in amber. They've been dubbed Trimixa coprolithica, the species part of that name referring to where the beetles were found, in coprolite, aka fossilized dung. Quoting the New York Times, The scientists suspect that the waste belonged to Silosaurus opalensis, a close relative of dinosaurs that lived about 230 million years ago, though it's tricky to place once separated from its point of origin. The coprolite was collected near the village of Krasijau in southern Poland at a quarry where remains of S. opalensis and other late Triassic vertebrates have been excavated, end quote. The study of coprolite has been a growing practice as it can lend huge insight into the diets of various species and is capable of preserving things like hair, feathers, and more quite well for millions of years. It can be tough to look inside and find anything, though. In this case, the specimen was scanned at a radiation facility in France and then rendered in 3D. Researchers say they were surprised by how intact the beetles were, but they were able to confirm that they were actually digested by the dinosaur in part due to some of them being less intact than others. Quoting Science Alert, the Triassic is thought to be a crucial period for insect evolution, especially for beetles, which are the most diverse order of organisms on Earth today. Unfortunately, many beetle fossils from this time only give us an imprint of the species, not a three-dimensional view. Amber deposits are the exception, however, these usually date no further back than 140 million years. The beetles found in dinosaur poop are nearly twice as old. End quote. Sam Head's curator of paleontology at the Illinois National History Survey, who was not involved in the study, explained to the New York Times that the Triassic period was, quote, kind of like a black hole when it comes to our understanding of the insect fossil record, end quote. And part of that is that, according to Science Alert, quote, it took until the early Cretaceous for tree resin to be abundant enough to capture early insects in action and fossilize them. During the Triassic, there was far less tree resin around, which means we don't have amber deposits to tell us what insects looked like at this time, end quote. So as Heads points out, this particular discovery is really significant, and most of the researchers agree that coprolites will likely be the key to understanding way more about insects in the Triassic period. Which is good news for anyone who loves bathroom humor, and on that note, for anyone listening who has kids, I've got to recommend the most relevant possible picture book series, The Dinosaur That Pooped. Written by McFly band members Tom Fletcher and Dougie Pointer, the picture book series includes such titles as The Dinosaur That Pooped a Planet and The Dinosaur That Pooped Christmas. 
sadly know the dinosaur that pooped 230 million year old beetles yet, but maybe they're working on it. So you know about ghost hunters and UFO enthusiasts, but I just discovered there are also people out there who devote substantial amounts of time and effort into sightings of dogmen. There are numerous sites and community boards dedicated to people reporting sightings or encounters. There's even a Dogman Encounters radio podcast, which is over 300 episodes deep and released a new episode just last week, although most recent episodes are behind a paywall. Now, you may be wondering what exactly a dogman is. Is it just a werewolf? No, actually. The crucial difference between a werewolf and a dogman is that a dogman is always in canine form, whereas a werewolf lives as a human outside of the full moon. Quoting dogmanencounters.com, The appellation dogman describes a group of more than one type of cryptozoological beings that are large and sometimes described as looking like upright canids. One type of dogman, I call a canine type, is described as looking like an upright canine. Another type of dogman, which is commonly referred to as a type 3, is described as looking like a Sasquatch with a muzzle instead of having a flat face. Eyewitnesses who have had encounters with type 3s also report seeing claws on the tips of their fingers and toes instead of fingernails and toenails the way a Sasquatch would have. Eyewitnesses who have had dogman encounters also often report that the one they saw was ambulating bipedally, which is obviously an unusual trait also. End quote. Some of the most legendary dogman sightings include the Michigan Dogman, sighted in Michigan in 1887, and which allegedly reappears every 10 years, and the Beast of Bray Road, sighted in Wisconsin in the 1980s and 90s. But encounters can happen anywhere. The North American Dogman Project maintains a map of North American encounters, and there is a global map at dogmanencounters.com in case you want to double-check if there have been any dogman sightings near you. So there's your dose of subculture for the week, and shout-out to author and Halloween historian Lisa Morton, who tipped me off to the dogman community in her newsletter today. Well, we've got an update in billionaires racing each other to space news. Richard Branson has now announced that he plans to go to space on Virgin Galactic's Unity 22 mission on July 11th, nine days before Jeff Bezos' scheduled flight on July 20th. Now, this is slightly expected, as Virgin Galactic seemed to be fast-tracking plans ever since Bezos announced he'd be joining the Blue Origin flight later this month, but nonetheless kind of ridiculous still. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to think of this, the whole billionaire space race thing. And, you know, not that I'm necessarily rooting for any of them, but wouldn't it be kind of funny if Elon Musk just decides he's going to push up the launch of SpaceX's next crewed mission to the ISS to, like, next week and hop on board himself, beating the other space-obsessed billionaires both in time and distance from Earth, since SpaceX actually goes into orbit, whereas both Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin's flights are suborbital. I really would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when Bezos heard this news. And I'm really not envious of anyone working at Virgin Galactic who's probably had to pull repeated all-nighters because their boss couldn't stand coming in second place. 
Anyways, just a quick production note for you before I go. This weekend is Independence Day here in the U.S., so we'll be taking Monday off to observe the holiday. The show will be back on Tuesday, but whether you celebrate or not, I hope you have a safe and happy weekend. I'll talk to you again on Tuesday.